when you take care of women in any society in the world, you take care of a whole community. Women, when they're cared for, when they're literate, when they're supported, they lift everybody else up. I'm Rachel Krauss, and we are here to explore and unpack the essence, architecture, and DNA of purpose across industries, professions, relationships, and even within paradox. On this podcast, we will uncover the stories and journeys of our guests, unlocking pathways to grow, to gain, and to give. This is Listen on Purpose from Kindred Media. On this episode, I had the privilege of talking with my dear friend, Dr. Isolde Brillmeyer. Isolde is the deputy director of the new museum and guest curator at the International Center of Photography. In our discussion, Isolde shares her profound wisdom about how to elevate mundane transactions to transformative interactions. Hi, Rachel. Good morning. It's so nice to see you. So nice to see you. I was mentioning before that there's certain people in your life that are just pure oxygen. Your life just gets better just even knowing they're there. You're that person for me. Well, I'm happy to be here with you. It's a privilege to have you as a friend, as an industry leader, as a real industry tastemaker and influencer and for what you're doing with your professional life, where your passions are in your personal life. So it's a really privilege to have you here. So Isolde, can you tell us a little bit about you? about your background, your upbringing? Sure. We're in New York now, but I originally hail from Seattle. For the most part, grew up there, spent some time in high school in Germany. I come from a very multicultural family. My mom is Austrian. My dad's Ugandan. I grew up here and had a sort of 70s, 80s Seattle childhood, which meant a lot of outdoors But very early on, I think something that really shaped my life as a young person, but also very much today, very early on, I became interested in dance. I think it was after seeing The Nutcracker at Pacific Northwest Ballet, which is the big dance company there, and started dancing at the age of seven and didn't really stop until the age of maybe 27, classical ballet and modern I devoted, as I got older, up through middle school and high school, a lot of time to that art form and that passion. And so I think it's really shaped so much of who I am, for better or worse, and even trickles over into all of my more recent work, I would say, over the last maybe two decades in the contemporary art space. I left Seattle and I came out to New York to go to Columbia University did my undergrad there, took some time. I was dancing for a good chunk of that time. And then sort of began to feel like I had multiple interests. A dancer's life is relatively short, or at least it was back then. I know dancers now can dance quite a bit longer, but was still very much interested in the creative space and being around artists. So I had grown up around dancers, but took some classes in undergrad in art history You know, it's so funny, Rachel. Originally, I thought when I graduated, I was going to draw on my multicultural background and the languages that I speak and be a broadcast journalist. I am a big fan of Christiane Rampour. And I thought, oh, how wonderful to travel around the world and meet all different kinds of people, partner with them and share their stories. And then I went and did a stint right out of college at ABC, and it was horrible. (laughs) (laughs) 
It was like soul crushing. Everything from the dress code to the culture, it felt very sort of stiff and tightly wound. So I very quickly realized that might not be for me, but went on to work in some policy roles. I come from a family that is very much committed to giving back and fighting the fights that need to be fought. So I worked in policy around criminal justice reform for a while. And then on the side, I was just interning or volunteering at museums. I was volunteering at the time. This was in my kind of mid-20s at what was then the Museum for African Art in Soho. I was leading their foreign language tours and doing some of their public programming and educational work. And a job popped up at the Guggenheim. I worked at the Guggenheim for three years. I went back and did my PhD in art history. I think the biggest thing for me was working with art and working with artists, living artists. So came out of Columbia and did some teaching, had quite a few years at Vassar. And the teaching obviously has a bit more flexibility than a regular nine to five. So I was able to start dipping my toe into curating and working with artists and thinking about how to put together exhibitions And that's sort of the journey. I've held some curatorial positions at institutions, and then I've worked quite a bit on my own. And I know, Rachel, you and I worked down at the World Trade Center, where I was heading up the art and cultural programming, which was a total joy working with you and building out that program. But I am now the deputy director at the New Museum, where I have been for the last eight months and very much enjoying it. I'm not curating. So this is more of a management leadership role, which I was feeling very, very ready for and excited about. Rachel, you know me. I love people. I mean, so much. I just love (laughs) people in all of their complexities and absurdities and joy and talent. So I'm enjoying this job quite a bit. It's just a wonderful museum. It's a great group of people. The director, Lisa Phillips, has just been incredibly supportive and mentoring. And yeah, that's sort of professionally where I've landed. Of course, I have to throw in there along the way, I had a daughter who is now 12, almost 12. She'll be 12 next week. And she is just a firecracker, incredibly inspiring. I learn from her every day. I think being a mother and being a working mother, you know, it all sort of folds into each other. And she has really made me, I think, better in a way and more efficient at what I do. And also really has inspired me to kind of stop and smell the roses and consistently ask myself, or at least consistently sort of check in with myself around my purpose and why I do what I do. I know every single one of those touch points is a novel unto itself and a storyboard unto itself in terms of where the ups and downs were and the motivation and the setbacks and the resilience and in all of that. I'm sure going back as far as the dancing stage and being an artist athlete, ballet is one of those interesting places or, or dance in general that it really brings together two worlds of the right brain and the left brain in terms of there's yep. there's the athleticism sure. in it. And then of course, the artistic prowess that comes along with that. I know that so much of your life, not even, we're leaving career out as a category, because it's really about life, is that intersection of right brain, left brain, purpose and creativity, and the intersection of how all of it converges. And you just mentioned with your daughter, how much inspiration you derive from her and how much it directs the sense of purpose, which is really the objective and goal and discussion point of today. You're a person who I know has always been driven by purpose and whether it's by a certain 
category, a certain mandate, a certain need that's in the community or on a global scale, that you've always been driven by purpose and somehow have been able to create these remarkable places of intersection where you bring your skill and your talent and allow that to facilitate solution orientation, expansion, and growing in whatever that sense of purpose is. You mentioned criminal justice reform, and I know that's something that's really important to you. How has that played a role in how you think, in what's inspired you to make certain decisions or go in certain directions? Like, how has that added a sense of purpose and goal in what you do and how you think? You know, I'm a post-civil rights baby. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. My father lived through British colonialism in his country. My mom, obviously, is sort of more post-war, but was very much steeped in that history and awareness as she was coming up. I think both my parents raised me and my younger brother to have a really strong sense of what is right and just, to have humility, and to have a sense of gratitude and an awareness that life can be sweet and full of joy, but there are also a lot of challenges and there are also a lot of people who face a lot of challenges. We had very, very open discussions in my home and around the dinner table about politics, about race, specifically race in America, but also thinking more globally with regards to colonialism. We had conversations about war and anti-war protests. And Rachel, you know me, you and I have had multiple conversations just about all of these things. They matter because we're all in this together. It's not enough if one or two or 1% of us move ahead and sit in our comfort. The purpose of being a part of humanity is to literally and collectively be a part of that unit. And so it's very important to me to have gratitude for where I'm at. And even within that, an acknowledgement that I worked really hard to get here. I'm not taking away from that. But also to know that that then affords me the privilege of reaching back, reaching out to bring more people along. With criminal justice, I mean, there's so many systems, I think, and I'm going to be US-centric in this, that are built on our history, essentially, which I would argue we as Americans have not yet really fully contended with or come to terms with. And the criminal justice system is one of those structures of power, systems of power, that has its roots that can be traced back to slavery, back to slave patrols, and brought more into the present around different concepts of policing. So there's that piece of it, and then there's also the laws that have been enacted from also that period, slavery, maybe even more specifically Jim Crow, that are unjust, they're unfair, they're biased, they're based on race, which I would say is a social construct, but it's one that's been constructed to uphold certain things in this country. They're based on class and even based on gender. I'm on the board of the Women's Prison Association, and we partner with women who are formally system-involved, who are coming back out and and really just trying to get on their feet. Let me also say that I'm a big fan of redemption and second chances. In most cases, the women who we work with, the majority of them are there for nonviolent offenses and really had some missteps or were not given a fair start. And you could probably say that for a lot of the people who are system involved or even currently within the system. So you know, here in New York, Rachel, we dealt with the Rockefeller drug laws and three strikes, you're out. Ironically now, marijuana is legal. <laughs> But how many people, specifically Black and brown folks, really were stuck? 
behind bars because of those laws, which I think were incredibly unfair because they targeted very specific kinds of drugs that were perhaps more connected to black and brown communities, or at least that was the assertion. So that's kind of a round of way saying that my upbringing and when I see this and when I see how many people have been involved in the system, but yet have so much incredible potential to make a positive impact within our society. Very early on, I realized that was a space that I really wanted to advocate for. At WPA, which is the Women's Prison Association, we deal specifically with women. I happen to think that when you take care of women in any society in the world, you take care of a whole community. Women, for the most part, when they're cared for, when they're literate, when they're supported, they lift everybody else up. Their children are more likely to be supported and healthy and literate. And the women at WPA are just simply remarkable. They've gone through hell and back, most of them. Most of them come from really severe backgrounds of abuse. And they are just incredibly inspirational to me. So it's really about listening and supporting and advocating and collaborating to create platforms for the organization and for the women. They don't need anybody else's voice to speak for them, but it's an area that I am deeply passionate about and committed to. And I really believe that there's so many people who could be out and about in society creating meaningful change and making great contributions and whatever I can do to help create those paths for folks. One of the things you touched on is this idea of redemption and how you have taken your upbringing and your own story and have used that as a portal of engagement to create opportunities for others, to create space for voice, space for advancement, and for collaboration, as you had mentioned. And it's extraordinary not to take even a moment of that for granted or take advantage of it. And it's incredible to see and to hear how much intention goes into your day and your thought and your time and your effort and your energy and how you're using every piece of you, your history, your present, and building a future in a way that's bringing redemption to others on a very personal and very impactful way. It's just remarkable to hear how much intention drives your decisions and how much your past also influences where you are and what you're choosing to do with your extraordinary skill and talent. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm one little person in a sea of people. I think all of us have an opportunity to be helpers in some way or another. And if there are enough helpers around a particular person, around a particular problem, my hope is is that we can have an impact. So, There's an ancient adage that saving one person is like saving the entire world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. If we all do our part, be amazing. Exactly. I think what we can achieve. So fully agree. Absolutely. And one of the experiences I had with you, just an extraordinary look back and rearview mirror and World Trade Center and being part of that project and and the development, one of the touch points or one of the experiences that I learned from you on a consistent basis was this intersection of interactions and elevating them into transformative relationships and not necessarily looking at something in a transactional mindset, but really elevating it into an intersection of humanity. You experience that and express that through the culture and art that you brought into World Trade Center and in the formation and the strategy of the convergence of community and commerce. And I wanted to drill down a little bit and dig a little bit on this notion of transforming transactions into meaningful interactions. So can you share a little bit about what your vision was? It can be specifically on that project or just generally this notion of what could be a transactional relationship and looking for touch points or excuses to create more meaningful interactions out of those experiences. 
I don't in general think in a transactional way, and I know you don't either. I think sometimes within the context of work, we're asked to do that because we're always asked, well, what's your ROI on that? (laughs) My joke is always this, even when I was working independently and I would do these big pitches, inevitably, whoever you were pitching to would say, well, what's the ROI? And I would say, well, you have two ROIs. You have the green you have a green ROI and that's money. And maybe I was able to put a dollar amount to it. Maybe I would just sort of acknowledge the fact that there needed to be some kind of financial return on an investment. And then I would always say, but your second ROI, and I think the most important because it's the most meaningful and the most authentic and the most sustainable is your red. And that's the heart. So you got your dollar bills and then you've got your heart, your ROI. What I meant by that really was that's the engagement, that's the social impact, that's the immense transition or shift that you might be able to bring about for people. And then by extension for the company, because we know, and this is your language far more than it is mine in terms of marketing, Rachel, that especially today and younger generations, they want people to put their money where their mouth is. They want to buy from companies, engage with companies and entities that really walk the walk and talk the talk and that are incredibly meaningful in their interactions or, quote, transactions. So if I think about the work that you and I did down at the World Trade Center, it was a hard pitch for us to say, listen, you have to give us X amount of dollars so that we can do this big art installation. But then once we actually did the art project, and I was thinking of Jonathan Horowitz's Dots project, people all of a sudden realized, wow, oh, I see what Rachel and Isolde are talking about. So it isn't just about the fact that people aren't paying to engage with this artwork, but it's more the fact that we created, it's about placemaking, it's about community building. We created a very specific moment where people could come together and learn and exchange with one another and build community and feel as if they were in a place that was created for them. And then when they walk away, that's what they leave with. They leave with this idea that, oh, wow, that company did this for me, for us, for the community. And that's one of the reasons I love working with artists. I think artists think that way. They are masters at their craft and they work tirelessly to hone their skills and build their practice. But they also do that so that they can create something and put it out in the universe for people. They make work to be seen, I always say, not to be shoved in the back of a closet. They're not doing it to put it out in the world. Their hope is, I think, for the most part, and if there are artists that are listening, I hope I'm doing this justice, but really to put work out there and to give people the opportunity to engage with it, to think about it, to see the work, to see themselves in the work. It's about having an impact on how human beings see one another, but also see themselves, because that's actually what creates culture. I'm thinking about when you're inside an organization, you're like, oh, wow, you know, we need to change the culture. And it's like, who creates the culture? It's people. So it's very much what we're talking about. It's about asking people to think differently about how we see one another, but also to think differently about how we see ourselves. And in that, there's possibility. And then that trickles out to create whatever this thing is that we call culture. So I think the work that we did at World Trade Center really, in a way, did that we would invite artists to create things and put them out in the universe and engage with what we were calling accidental audiences because no one was coming to World Trade to see art. They were coming to catch the PATH train or the 2-3 train or to grab a coffee or Italy or whatever it may be. But we would 
put things there that would ask them to pause and stop and think or consider or just take a break. That for me is incredibly meaningful. And that's a kind of transaction. It just doesn't translate to dollars. Fortunately for me, I don't hold the purse strings on a lot of these projects. I don't have to necessarily worry about that. But I do think that most people would agree that the ROI of humanity and social impact is huge. And that's really what leads to longevity and sustainability. It's an amazing way of looking at it and bringing these two worlds together in terms of this return on. And it's almost like those experiences that you've been able to engineer and create and curate and facilitate really become moments that sometimes are even life-changing for someone. So a person might experience something and it's a serendipitous moment to, in the words of your daughter, stop and smell the roses, right? Yeah. So there are certain serendipitous moments that kind of just bring you in to enjoy and embrace and be mindful of the here and now. I have no doubt there have been experiences that have changed people's lives because of their interaction and not just a transaction, but that interaction that return on human effort or the return on human energy or the return on humanity that comes through. And it's so clear that that's like a North Star in how you think. And in this leadership role, how have you seen the convergence of that way of thinking in terms of return on humanity or return on that kind of impact or return on purpose? You know, I had to ask myself this morning before joining you, Rachel, purpose for me is about the why. Okay, why am I getting up? Why am I going to do this project? Why did I take this job? It's asking myself and being very honest with myself about the why. And I think the why can change. I think you can have a sense of purpose. You can have senses of purpose. My purpose in my personal life may be different than my purpose in my professional life, but somewhere along the line, there's alignment between the two of them. I'm deputy director at the New Museum. I came on board because I really believe in the museum. The museum was founded many decades ago, a little over four, almost four, by a woman named Marsha Tucker, who, and I should note that it's always been woman-led, which is really interesting, but really felt the need to create a space for artists who have been historically excluded. And so what does that mean? Yes, that's artists of color, that's Black artists, Latinx artists, Asian artists, that's also women artists, that's also artists that are maybe in their midlife, mid-career, and have never fully gotten their due. The museum really holds true to that vision to this day. And that really appealed to me, the fact that it was founded on a premise and that premise still remains at its core. It's an incredibly global institution. Over 50% of our visitors are actually international tourists. It's known and I think appreciated beyond the boundaries of New York or the U.S. All of those things were incredibly appealing. It was also appealing to come on board and work with the current director, Lisa Phillips, who I very much admire and have followed her work for years. And she's been a mentor to many, many younger women. We can all use mentors. I think it's important for us to be mentors. Coming out of the pandemic, a lot of questions are being asked and in certain ways demanded of companies and organizations and museums. Like, what is a museum? What's the purpose of a museum? What is a museum going to look like in the future? And that's coupled with questions around equity, thinking about race, thinking about gender, thinking about pay equity, thinking about access for folks who are disabled and either work at the museum or would like to visit. All of these questions and issues are front and center for everyone, and I'll speak specifically to the museum. So it was really interesting and exciting because I asked these questions, as you and I just discussed, in my personal life and my lived experience. 
it felt really exciting to me to come on board to the new museum at this moment in time and work with this really talented team to answer some of these questions. I think we're really poised as a mid-sized museum that's very current and engaged in not only art, but ideas and issues that are floating around the world at the moment. And there's an opportunity also to think about how we can define museums for the future. That's a project within a big project. And you know, I love projects. And the way to do that, obviously, we work with artists and we provide platforms for artists and their work and their vision. And that's incredibly important. But one way to do that is to think about people and to prioritize people, to put people over projects and people over profits and think about, well, we're creating all this magic with the artists. We want to make sure we're taking good care of the artists, but we also want to make sure we're taking good care of the people that are making the magic. What are their needs? What are their concerns? What are their goals? And then how can we partner with everyone internally and in particularly at the senior level to support everybody who's making the magic happen and really empower them to be able to be the best that they can be and deliver the best results that they're able to. It's obviously clear that being a person who's tethered to people in terms of the interactions, being in person, I'm sure, has been a delight to be able to reemerge, hopefully more informed and better and stronger and than what we knew before and being able to enjoy and appreciate those human interactions and being in person in a, in a totally more pronounced and amplified way. It's amazing to hear how you talk about people first and having that as such a core central gravitational force that in the process of creating magic, the why and who we're creating for and why we're creating it certainly defines more than just a reason to exist, but really the drive and intention around that reason to exist. So it's a beautiful idea just to think about this notion of people first and who we're really here for and how even on the business front, our product, service, experience, installation is really about something that's towards a greater outward facing view and not necessarily just what's in it for me, but the what's in it for you and the what's in it for us. Like how do we get stronger? How do we become more informed? And how do we change or evolve or become inspired by the interactions and experiences that we are fortunate to have? And you're at the frontier of creating that environment that does that for people, that is that point of interaction and is that point of transformation. It's really remarkable. In thinking and reflecting over your professional life, personal life, is there a specific experience in the past now that drives more or the the value around purpose? Is there like a specific tipping point for you or a memory, an interaction that was a driving force in incorporating these very important foundational pillars into your life and into your way of seeing the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there are a number of things. I talked earlier about my upbringing in the dance world. Dancers, if you want to think about folks that have purpose and what gets you up every day when your body aches and your toes are bloody and (laughs) that sense of purpose and drive to bring maybe a ballet or a dance to fruition for an audience, I think is really huge. So I think that absolutely has contributed to the way I think about purpose and the why. It's sort of twofold. There's the internal, like, why am I doing this? What does this bring for me or do for me? Or how does this inspire me and make me happy? 
And then there's the external of what then am I bringing for everybody else? What am I giving to others or offering the world? That was a question that I continually thought about as a dancer. And I think a lot about that in my own work. I have my own goals professionally, but at the end of the day, the impact for me comes in what am I doing to inspire other people, to support other people and contribute to making, whether it's my organization or my community or the world a better place. So that's really important to me. And that also extends into motherhood. And I know that you fully understand this, Rachel, but how can I be the best mom? And notice I didn't say the perfect mom because I don't think that that exists, but the best mom that I can be most of the time because I can't do it all the time. Sometimes I'm just exhausted or lose my temper. I don't get it right. But how can I work to be mindful? How am I speaking to my daughter? How am I supporting her? What things could I have done better? Talk about purpose, helping to guide her on the journey of life so that she can go out and stand on her own two feet and be her own great person, speak for herself and advocate for herself. That is a tremendous sense of purpose. And I think in the end, it all falls under that same umbrella. If there's an internal compass that you think about, but you also want that to guide you externally where you have a positive impact. This metaphor or analogy about the internal compass and the external compass, because how we map internally, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and with a sense of direction and our own individual purpose, how that also interacts and maps to the outside world sure, in a way that also drives meaning on the outside. So we're big into swag. If you have to give a swag bag of advice or a takeaway that somebody can do, something that we can walk away with a statement or an idea or something that we can incorporate into our lives to take some of the wisdom that you've shared, whether it's the return on humanity. You talked earlier on about humility and gratitude being such incredible formative attributes to be the filter through which we interact and experience the world. The internal compass mentorship you mentioned. So what would you advise? What would you give or the gift of sharing that you can leave us with? Humility and gratitude are incredibly important. I think it's really important to be humble. And it doesn't mean you can't celebrate your accomplishments, but I think humility is important. Gratitude. If there's one thing through the pandemic, we saw so much inequity and suffering bubble to the surface. And a lot of it was there before, but all of the layers were peeled back. And so I think it's important to have gratitude. It's hard to say we're on the tail end or post-pandemic because various states of the world, and even here in New York in our own backyard, are actually not. Even if they don't have COVID, they're now struggling with food scarcity or they're struggling to pay their electric bills. And Rachel, you and I talk about this all the time. I'm so humble to be healthy and for my family to be healthy and to be able to get up and do what I do. And I have a lot of gratitude. As women and for me as a Black woman, these are nuggets that have been shared with me by people like you, by friends, by mentors creating your spaces of belonging. For so often, as I was coming up, I always felt a lack of belonging in a lot of the spaces that I existed in, whether that was graduate school, whether that was in a professional setting. And I think having a sense of belonging is incredibly important, being seen and being heard, and also being seen and being heard by the right people, by people whose values align with yours, who you know you can look to for support is really important. 
So belonging and also to value ourselves, to feel like we can bring our whole selves to the table, I think is really important to feel that we can speak up when we need to about things, especially in this particular moment. And I know the younger generations feel a great sense of freedom around this to speak up and speak out when things don't sit right, when somebody has done something that you found triggering or that has bothered you. I mean, we are in a moment now where at this point, you don't even have anything to lose. So as a woman in the workplace or as a BIPOC, a person of color in a place, I think it is really important to use our voice and advocate for ourselves. And then by extension, to think about as we look around, who else could use some advocating? And I don't want to jump into this notion of speaking for others because everybody has a voice, whether you're speaking, whether you're signing, whether you're signaling, everybody has a voice. But I think it's important also for us to listen, for us to check in with people. Are you okay? What can I do to support you? Is there something that you need? Taking time to ask those questions is really important as well. I've actually watched you over the years create space for voices for other people. And to your point, not speaking for them, but to create space that they can be heard. I've watched you do that in countless experiences, and it's a very unique, very powerful quality to create space for others. Thanks, Rachel. The feeling is mutual. Isolde, what you've just shared is so remarkable. And in terms of that self-evaluation and thinking about bringing our whole selves, it creates a sense of purpose and direction for us and also really a sense of purpose for the world. And even this last point you just made about checking in with people, one small act or one small phone call or a text can really change everything, change someone's day, someone's life even. So Yeah, it feels good to be good. It feels good to to be good. good. It feels good to be good. Wow. Thank you so much for making time to chat. Yeah, and thank you for the wisdom that you bring today and every day and for the countless, really countless people who've been touched either directly or indirectly by your gracious spirit of humanity and humility and gratitude and for all the incredible work that you're doing. Thanks so much, Rachel, for having me. Great to see you. Thank you so, so much, Isolda. Listen On Purpose is a series as part of Kindred Cast from Kindred Media and Audiation. Our executive producer is Sandy Smallins. The show is produced by Ireland Meacham and mixed by Matt Noble with music by my nine-year-old son, Noam Kraus. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe to Kindred Cast wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review letting us know what you think. I'm your host, Rachel Kraus. Thank you for listening. <laughs>